Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the new podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. I'd like to start off by thanking everyone who listened and shared episodes from the Talking Transit series. Ultimately, the transit referendum did not pass, um, but we can be sure that the conversations around transit will continue. For this episode, I had a chance to sit down with State Senator Jeff Yarbrough to record a wrap-up episode of the state legislative session that recently concluded. Uh, we talked about everything from immigration to health care to transit. I thought it was a really interesting discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. So my guest today in the first uh, post-transit referendum podcast is State Senator Jeff Yarbrough. Uh, a little bit of background about Jeff. Uh, he's a Harvard grad, grew up in West Tennessee, went to Virginia Law School. Uh, he works at Bassbury and Sims Law Firm here in Nashville. He was elected to the state Senate in 2014 after attempting in 2010 and losing by the infamous margin of 16 votes. 17 votes. 17 votes. But who's counting? Jeff serves as a member of the Senate Transportation and Safety Committee, as well as the State and Local Government Committee. So, just some fun little questions to get started. Uh, Vanderbilt or UT? I root for UT. Okay. I try not to tell too, too many people. I represent Vanderbilt, and they're a great community. (laughs) But you're not pulling for them. That's right. Not going to play in UT. And uh, what's a a few uh, book recommendations for us? Things that have kind of shaped your worldview and, uh, you know, a few favorite books. Uh, I mean, I still, from a political standpoint, love all the King's Men. From a shaping worldview, uh, now let us praise famous men has has always been a book that matters to me, and um, and I occasionally will go on splurges where I like read <laughs> the Iliad. <laughs> And, but, uh, lots of things. So that's great. And, uh, what is one thing about your background that most people don't know? I think most people who know me as uh, a state Senator in Nashville don't realize that I grew up in a small town in West Tennessee, uh, where my dad was a farmer and my family had worked farming in Dyer County for, I guess, three generations before I moved to town. Yeah, that's a great that's a great backstory. So, given your background uh, working with uh, Connexion Americas here in Nashville, um, can you talk a little bit about the Sanctuary City bill that we've that we've seen passed, uh, setting the stage there? Uh, Tennessee and rural uh, Bean Station had an immigration raid recently that drew national attention. Uh, Ninety-seven am- uh, immigrants were arrested by ICE at a meat processing plant, and it was the largest workforce raid in over a decade. And the state then passed a sanctuary city bill in 2009, and then this recent bill attempted to kind of add some teeth to that and force uh, municipalities to enforce uh, federal immigration law. So can you talk a little bit about that and why you find that problematic? Absolutely. It's probably the worst bill that the legislature passed this year substantively, uh, because it starts out by being likely unconstitutional, sort of encourages cities or mandates cities to disregard the Fourth Amendment. Uh, It imposes an unfunded mandate on communities and requires them to participate uh, with the federal government regardless of whether they're reimbursed for it or not. And it really serves no purpose. 
as you mentioned, we outlawed so-called sanctuary cities mm-hmm. several years ago. Uh, but it's a new campaign cycle, and people need something new to say about immigration. So we've basically just done something that isn't going to eliminate any sanctuary cities because we don't have any in Tennessee. Uh, this would require our local governments to effectively just operate on the say-so of ICE. And I think that that is a really dangerous thing for, for, the, for the state to do. And one thing that jumped out to me is that ICE can be wrong. I mean, there was the case of uh, Davino Watson in Alabama when he was held for over three years, wasn't given a, a court-appointed attorney in immigration court, and ICE was convinced he was a, a, a deportable alien, even though he was a U.S. citizen. No, that is exactly right. United States citizens end up getting detained by ICE uh, not infrequently. And one of the reasons that it makes sense for a local government to require that there be some sort of warrant for a person is to ensure that you've met just basic constitutional safeguards for keeping someone. It's relatively insane that we would impose a lower standard on ICE than we do on our local police departments and sheriff departments for holding anyone else in custody. Um, I mean, at a certain level, we're just saying if this if this officer wearing a badge comes and says you got to hold this person, uh, the state is now directing every local government to just say yes, regardless of whether there's any indication that they're a non-citizen or have done anything wrong or anything else. It's really scary, and I think it it sets a damaging. Uh, view of our state nationally in terms of our reputation. Um, odds that, that Governor Haslam chooses to veto it? You know, I think that's the, the decision of the hour. I would hope that the uh, governor would show some courage and veto this bill because of its many, many problems that we've talked about. Uh, a lot of times what happens when there's a bill like this is he just doesn't sign it and lets it become law. Uh, and I hope he doesn't do that in the, this instance, but I think those are the, those are the alternatives. And uh, he, is, he has used the veto power more infrequently than almost any other governor, and which is a, is, does not bode well. But this is a particularly egregious act, so hopefully he will do the right thing. Sure. Um and just because it's it's very timely with the transit election having been this Tuesday, and you do serve on the Transportation and uh, Safety Committee, after Tuesday's result, where do you think Nashville goes from here on on transit, and, and how surprised were you by the loss and, and, and by the 28-point margin there? Uh, I wasn't so much surprised by the, the outcome. I think that the margin was somewhat surprising and should be a wake-up call to everyone. And I think it has to do with, uh, obviously there's a transit component, but I think there's also just a level of, you know, sort of trust in the direction of the city. And uh, I think there's a, this is a big cliff to jump off of, and I think that people were in different places. Um, I mean, I think where we go from here is, I think we need to, I don't think we need to rush. This is an urgent problem. That's true. It's a pressing and important 
decision for the future of the city, but we need to recalibrate and figure out what needs to happen. Uh, I mean, I think that the framework of most any plan is going to be uh, addressing central corridors and trying to figure out some way to move across downtown. The question really then becomes one of, you know, what modes? Is it light rail, buses, streetcars, and how much and how long? And the there's some aspect of this where people wanted to get want to get closer to their house, but also want to spend less, um, which is harder to do. <laughs> Obviously, building a, a bigger system takes a larger investment. Uh, I think the thing that we have to be most careful not to do is take a an overly incremental small ball plan. Uh, if you look at cities that have made sort of mild investments in transit, they don't even necessarily recoup the investment of you know recruit the mild investment. Um, I mean, I think you can always be making improvements, but if we're going to use the the referendum process again, I think we need to. Uh, you know, that's something that where we need to be acting in the long term. As a legislator at the state level, how worried are you that in, in the next session, there might be a move to remove the Improve Act, which gives uh, cities the authority to raise sales tax for the purpose of mass transit? So I'm significantly worried about that. Um, that was something that came up a little bit this year where there was some consideration of trying to effectively insert a legislative veto over any light rail line. Uh, that's reckless and kind of just playing politics in a way that I think is unhelpful. And frankly, the outcome sh you know, should uh, demonstrate to my colleagues in the legislature that Nashville is not going to haul off and, and pass a plan lightly. This is a decision that taxpayers are going to take very seriously, and you're only going to get passage with a with a good plan, and so hopefully that will you know to to grab a a silver lining is to hopefully there's a, a better a, a weaker case for the legislature to get involved and mess around with the Improve Act. And uh, one other issue that came up at the end of session here. Um, dealt with Memphis and the removal of uh, Confederate statues. And I believe the city of Memphis sold two parks to a nonprofit to circumvent state laws so that the nonprofit could remove the uh, statues. And then the state house responded by stripping Memphis of a quarter million dollars in grants for a, bi a bicentennial celebration next year. What do you think the precedent is there? What do you think the future moves are? And is this just another example of the state kind of moving in and trying to dictate what a city does? It's pathetic that the legislature spent more time worrying over dead Confederates than live Tennesseans this year. <laughs> um, you know, the amount of time and energy that was spent on trying to punish Memphis is an embarrassment. There's been even been some reporting that the $200,000 grant that you were talking about was written into the budget so that it could be publicly stripped out. Wow. That that $200,000 grant was never in the Senate side of the budget. They added it in the House so and the the same sort of group of people came back later and took it out publicly over 
the forest statue, uh, which is, uh, you know, <laughs> it's like it's like buying your kid a puppy so that you can kill it. <laughs> <It's just laughs> not, um, but uh, I think that's a real embarrassment. The overall thing that you that you that your question asked is speaks more to the legislature and local control. And for this group of people, it's turned into something much more akin to controlling locals. And it's historically, Republicans have been the party that thinks that limited and more local government is best. Uh, But what we're seeing more and more is that the government that's best is the one that agrees with us. That they control. Right. And we saw that again with the regulation of short-term rentals that had been passed here in Nashville, and then the state overturned that. What was your take on short-term rentals? The short, I think the short-term rentals was a really, uh, you know, sad manifestation of this local control issue. Now, that being said, the legislation did get a lot better over the course of time, so it wasn't. It wasn't just targeted at Nashville, it was statewide. It wasn't a complete preemption of Nashville's ordinance. Instead, it was a grandfathering in for people who had uh, already, you know, who had permits before Nashville enacted its ordinance. And so that was a place where we, uh, that ended up being a fight on the Senate floor, which was the longest while I've, during my four years in office. And there were lots of, of close calls in there. And it, given where that started, we did as well for Nashville as I think we possibly could have. Because the first was just going to preempt Nashville's re- ordinance altogether. The second version was going to not just grandfather all these permits in, but basically make them run with the land. So if you had, had, a, if you had, had an Airbnb permit at your house you'd be able to sell your house to the next buyer and they'd be able to continue running the Airbnb. Basically maintaining your inflated property value. Exactly. And uh, and so we took that part out because I think all of us know that what the reason that there's a permit process is we want to make sure that there's going to be a responsive and responsible owner, not that there's something particular about the amenities of, of, the, of yeah. the property itself. That's a great point. So to kind of switch gears and, and move into healthcare, care, uh, two things come to mind for me. One is Medicaid expansion that still hasn't been possible. And then uh, also the opioid uh, epidemic here within the state. First, with regards to Medicaid expansion, is there any hope of reviving that during the next session? Or was our best and last shot under Governor Haslam? Who was favorable to expanding it, but also a uh, Republican? I'm not going to give up hope on expanding Medicaid in Tennessee because it's the single most important thing that the legislature could do. Um, When the history is written of this period in time, the biggest decision that all of us in the legislature will have made is not to expand Medicaid. And the fact that we haven't even cast a vote on that in either floor of either chamber is, is shocking, really, when you think about how important it is. But Medicaid expansion, is, it's too vital to the economy, too vital to people's health care. And the fact that we've got uh, a group of legislators who have made the conscious decision 
that 200,000 people shouldn't have affordable health care and shouldn't be able to get health care is, you know, frankly, of, you know, not just an economic and health policy calamity, but a, but a significant moral failing. And I think we've got to absolutely keep going there. And I think at some point, the federal law is unchanged. The best chance to change the federal law is going on right now in the first two years of the Trump administration. Uh, one would hope that the closer you, the farther away you get from the Obama years, that, that we can start just making a good decision for our state. Otherwise, what you're going to see happening is just a real divergence between states with Medicaid expansion and states without. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to change the health outcomes, obviously the equity, but I mean, it it goes farther than that. It goes to what kind of providers you have. So I know you're about to ask about the opiate epidemic, but I mean, we have healthcare companies based in Nashville. They're headquartered here. They're trying to figure out innovative and cost-effective ways to deal with the opiate epidemic, but they don't serve any Tennesseans. And it's not because those Tennesseans don't, aren't struggling with the opiate epidemic, far from it. It's because the business model doesn't work in non-expansion states. Just the access. Well, and so that's one thing that's been so surprising to me. I mean, of course, you have the the aggressive politics on the right, but you have Haslam, who is favorable to expanding it. And as you mentioned, Nashville, basically the healthcare capital. We have all all of these rural hospitals who would need it. We have General Hospital here that would would benefit greatly, and still haven't been able to do it. And so I. Is there reason for optimism? What what change would have to take place to get it passed, essentially? Is it just distance from the Obama era, like you I, mentioned? I think it's got to stop being a Political article football. of faith amongst the Republican Party mm-hmm. or a much closer divide in the legislature, mm-hmm. both of which are, you know, I think going the right direction, but I still think, you know, there's time to, to, to get to either place. Um, but it is the group of 132 legislators are generally speaking, you can work with and solve problems unless it falls into what I like to call the MSNBC Fox News vortex. The national. And once an issue feels like it's part of national politics, then people revert to just what their tribal identity is Mm -hmm. and, and don't switch. The other big problem here is one of, uh, you know, gerrymandering. So in Tennessee for too long, we've let the August elections, the primaries, be the ones that mattered. Uh, The general elections end up being seated to be Democrat or Republican. And even though 65% of Tennesseans want Medicaid expansion, it's a much closer call amongst Republican primary voters. And when people's primary electorates are divided, the, the safest thing to do is just to say nothing, which is, I mean, you'll notice that they don't spend a lot of time going out, going out on crusades against Med- Medicaid expansion or against Obamacare. They just don't, let they come just to don't want to talk about it or vote about it. I mean, you know, there's a reason that Profiles in Courage is a relatively short book, and the... <laughs> And if we're going to do something about that, uh, we need 
uh, districts to be more competitive and the November electorate to matter a lot more in the political livelihood of a lot of these folks. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, your own district is very oddly shaped. To say the least. To basically carve out that, that seat and only that seat. Uh, so uh, I usually tell people my, my district connects every coffee shop, craft brewery, and vegetarian restaurant in <laughs> Davidson County. And uh, former mayor Bill Purcell, when he saw it the first time, said it sort of resembles the you know the last two feet of the lower intestine. (laughs) Sort of it zigzags in and out around town uh, in this kind of remarkable fashion. Uh, But it's done just because they wanted to put as many Democrats into that district as they could in order to create a different district that would favor Republicans. So on to the other issue of, of health care that I want to talk about is the opioid uh, epidemic. It seems like there's more potential for, for progress there. Uh, for whatever reason, it seems less partisan than uh, Medicaid expansion, perhaps because it's a more kind of uh, white rural issue to a large degree. Um, in the past, you've been critical of Governor Haslam for not being ambitious enough when it comes to funding programs uh, to address the opioid epidemic. Um, I think you've called the new uh, the new legislation that funds rural treatment programs uh, to the tune of about four and a half million dollars. You've you've called it a baby step. Can you explain for us the steps that the state has taken, and then also what more you'd like to see happen? Absolutely, and where I will give the majority and the governor some credit is identifying this as a priority. Uh, opiates killed more people in Tennessee last year than guns, killed more people than auto accidents. Uh, it is affecting a whole generation's lowering life expectancy. Mm-hmm. It's a bad problem, and we have to get a handle on it. Uh, we did a couple things this year. One is that we reduced or made it harder, basically, for people to get prescriptions for opiates, put up some more significant rules, uh, allow pharmacists to fill half prescriptions, things like that, uh, which is basically intended to decrease the number of prescriptions and and overall just decrease the amount of opiates that are being put into the market. Because right now, at least you know at the beginning of the year, uh, there was more than one opiate prescription for every person in Tennessee. Active so I mean, we have six point seven million people. And in a year, we would have over 6.7 million wow. uh, prescriptions for opiates. And so that's a correct problem to solve. So, But that's sort of going at the on-ramp to opiate use. What we didn't do much on is the off-ramp. I mean, we've got hundreds of thousands of people who are addicted to powerful opiates that were, in some cases, designed to be hard to kick. And we're, in some cases, jailing them instead of sending to rehab. That's exactly what we're doing. So, uh, I mean, we're spending less on treatment in the state of Tennessee next year than Innsworth spent on its new tennis courts. Wow. You know, I mean, it's laughable how little money we are spending on treatment uh, when it comes to opiates. And so what that does, if you, if you can't get into treatment or if you're putting up barriers to treatment, you're, you know, the, the, the scariest thing to see is you actually send people into the black market because uh, heroin is very cheap right now. 
it's very easy to cut the cheap heroin with, with fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And fentanyl is in remarkably deadly if you have even, you know, the slightest variation, you know, from what from what should be included, uh, if there ever were a, a, proper know, a proper recipe, you will. But it turns out that drug dealers are not always the best chemists. And, I mean, you can have batches of fentanyl-laced heroin that lead to 60 overdoses in a, in a two- or three-day period. And so it's really bad stuff. And so um, I fear that we might end up with more heroin arrest, more overdoses resulting from black market opiates, even if we're getting some control o- over the prescription opiates. Well, and so one follow-up question there. In terms of the incentives created by limiting prescriptions, is it possible that limiting the prescribing of opioids, which is a worthy uh thing to do. Is, is it possible that that creates the perverse incentive of more kind of black market heroin use because the pills are not available? I, I think that is the biggest fear that I have is that this legislation ends up being really good for heroin dealers. We have done something about the supply, mm-hmm. but we've done nothing about the demand. And, and maybe worse than safety in a, in a weird way. Right. And so, and so the danger is that if there's 200,000 people that used to be getting opiates and now there's only, you know, the, the, the supply has been cut off. Uh, if those people don't, can't seek treatment, which everybody knows and all the science, all the data, everything we've learned from every other state that's dealing with this epidemic is that sometimes you have to do real treatment to get people off these things. If we're not going to do that, I think we're just pushing them further into the criminal justice system. And that's kind of the other thing we did this year is we did increase the penalties on fentanyl and create a prison treatment program. But it is, I mean, it's just damn near heartbreaking that the only place where we're making a really significant policy change Mm -hmm. with regards to treatment is in prisons. That's kind of damning. Um, I guess one fair point to the uh, legislation about the prescriptions is I guess it's designed to prevent addicts on the front end by limiting the, uh, the supply to, to new people. Um, right. So you, have to, you have, you do have, have a positive effect there. Oh, and sure. I mean, I think, uh, look, I think the, the governor's had, you know, some of the proposals were okay in the sense that we do need to uh, like Tennessee does not need to have, over 6 million opiate prescriptions. Right. That's crazy. <laughs> um, I mean, I think trying to to cut back on that in a really significant way is unquestionably part of the plan. Uh, we need to stop creating new users. We need to stop the supply to legal users that ends up getting diverted into illegal use. But uh, the fact that we did nothing about the fact that You've got all these people who are already using and need to get into treatment or almost nothing so you for, would, the, for that population is irresponsible. So you would just like to see vastly uh, greatened access to rehab, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is a big part of it is that you have a lot of people who want to get off these things mm-hmm. and can't. Can't pay for it. And that's right. And... Um, people with great willpower oftentimes need medical medicine itself 
mm-hmm. you know, in order to get off these very powerful narcotics. This isn't something that was, you know, that people went out there looking for trouble in the for the most part. People were prescribed these. They were, you know, provided them to them by people they trust in their community, their physicians, their pharmacists, and because they, you know, were have have gotten these things legally, like now have a, a really big problem in their life. And I think that, you know, not only should we do it if we don't actually do something about treating this group population, the health problems just get worse and worse. Sure. Well, hope, hopefully the baby step turns into more uh, progress during the next session. Um, moving on now, uh, you co-sponsored child marriage legislation that got a lot of attention and seemed like sort of a crazy issue that that was still a thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think most people were surprised to hear that child marriage was legal. Yeah. Uh, but it turns out that it was it's legal in most states at some level. Uh, we passed a child marriage law in Tennessee in 1937, of all things, and had a very public incident back then that caused that law to happen. But we haven't really changed it since then. And so um, right now, under Tennessee law, uh, anyone 16, 17 can get married to anyone as long as their parents consent, regardless of if it's a 50-year-old, 60-year-old, 40-year-old. And we know that that statute has been used uh, to marry people off to their rapist. Uh, mm-hmm. There are, I mean, reported cases of that happening. And there's actually even an exception under the current law to let people under 16 get married with court approval, uh, which, uh, you know, part of that's just we need to come into the at least the 20th century on some of these things, and that's a, a law that needs to go away. We wanted to just, our pr- original proposal that J- Representative Darren Jernigan and I put forward would have just said 18's the floor. You have to be 18. Once you are 18, you can get married. Uh, For some reason, people really balked at that. So the Family Action Council uh, came up big saying that it would interfere with uh, parental, you know, parental authority and control. Uh, There were a lot of individual legislators who pointed to the fact that either they or their parents got married before they were 18. Sure. And so we ended up with a sort of compromise solution, which raises the age to 17. Uh, it, you, the, the other person, the, you know, uh, if, if a minor gets married, the person can only be up to four years older Mm-hmm. So that the marriage doesn't just inherently violate our statutory rape laws, right? Uh, and it provides some significant legal protections for women that are in these mari- marriages. First, they're emancipated so that they can actually be an adult. I mean, it's because right now under the law, you can marry as a sixteen-year-old, but you can't enter into a contract. So you can't have a binding contract to hire a lawyer to represent you in a domestic violence or divorce case. Wow. If you try to go to a domestic violence shelter, they would have to turn the, the, the young girl away because she would be considered a runaway, 
which is a status violation under the juvenile code. Uh, so, I mean, and that's, these are real situations that women find themselves in, and it's, it's pretty terrible. So we've provided some legal protection and actually sort of a cause of action or law, the ability to bring a lawsuit and void a marriage and actually obtain damages from someone who forced them into a marriage. So that's really good background to hear. And one, one question that I have is when I heard this on uh, the radio, I wondered if, was there a particular story that led you to look into this? Were there high profile cases you hear something like what caused you to bring to bring this up? So uh, we uh, basically we read about this story. Uh, I think I forget which news publications put it out, uh, but data sponsored by an advocacy group called Unchained at Last had gone through all the state data and pointed out just how many child marriages were happening in the United States. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a national project that they did. Um, and when we read about it, our office called them and started getting in touch and learned a bit more about the issue in Tennessee. And the more you dig into it, the more indefensible the practice becomes. But it ended up being a thing where I, I was working with friends in other parts of the country who were trying to pass similar laws in different states. Definitely a worthy cause. Another piece of legislation that you co-sponsored, uh, this one with Brenda Gilmore, uh, dealt with sexual harassment, and the legislation extended to um, the legislation extended the state's sexual harassment protections to include not only the employees of a particular business, but also to the contract workers at that business. Absolutely, and that was really important legislation that sadly did not move far this year. Uh, that was initially responding to numerous reports that came out of the country music industry of uh, artists and others who don't have standard employee-employer relationships and were expected to undergo or live with uh, a culture of harassment, uh, which I think all of us know is wrong, but our laws are really limited to just dealing with people that are W-2 employees. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, we live in a world where the workplace isn't that. And so we've got to figure out a way, as the workplace is changing to having a lot more people that are kind of doing the gig economy, a lot more people that are doing, you know, something that's in the considered an independent contract. There has to be some uh, safeguards for what is acceptable and appropriate and legal in the workplace. And uh, fixing that on just straight up employer-employee relationships is not the way to go. Yeah, basically, government has to find a way to adjust. What prevented that from from moving forward and, and passing? Who who were the people? Who were the forces that were against the sexual harassment prevention? Well, so I think there's a couple. I think one is there are some uh, forces in the business community who are going to be opposed to any extension of liability. Uh, if it's a new cause of action that employers and businesses are going to bear, uh, there's, there, there's a starting point of, of, my, of opposition 
in some quarters. And I think at some point, we're going to have to start calling people out on that. Uh, I think that there's also, it wasn't just this. On a few different issues, we saw uh, the Republican supermajority not want to give any life to bills that dealt with violence against women, sexual harassment, anything that was part of you know, the, the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. Instead of Me Too, it was not us <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, in Tennessee this year. And It's another example I of think once, it, once it goes on Fox. Once it becomes or, a national yeah. thing, people feel like they're playing roles instead of, um, instead of just thinking about what the right, yeah. the best job is. Yeah. Um, you're one of five state senators on the Democratic side. Uh, Kind of the the running joke is that you guys could all fit in the same car and go in and go to meetings. How painful exactly is it to show up to work in this legislature? Well, painful is not the right word because you know I, I love the work. It I've been able to pass legislation addressing affordable housing, uh, addressing protection for children, women, the elderly you know, create new uh, regional transportation options, all sorts of things that I definitely wouldn't have been able to do not in the legislature. All that being said, being one of five just dramatically limits the possibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, it means that... You're fighting fires. We can't propose, you know, cut, uh, deal, you know, sort of innovative progressive policy uh, unless no one understands that that's what you're doing when you do it. Um, and so you sort of start by working on things that, uh, where you can have, where you can build bipartisan support. In some ways, that's a great discipline, right? I know that I can't get a second in a committee unless I'm willing to work with somebody on the other side. And so I think partially it means that our instincts have to be able to work together with folks in order to get things passed and in order to stop things. Uh, it matters the most on the big things where all we can do is uh, be a conscience before they pass something that they think is good Republican po talking points. Mm -hmm. uh, we did that on the Sanctuary City Bill this year. We did it on Medicaid work requirements. Medicaid work requirements in Tennessee makes zero cents. Uh, even the Trump administration basically developed work requirements in order to do something for the states that had done expansion. In a state like Tennessee that only makes TennCare available to people who are children, elderly, disabled, you know, or parents of small children, imposing work requirements is just uh, adding bureaucracy for the sake of adding talking points to your mailer in the fall. And, I mean, that's just pathetic. But that's the kind of thing that we end up doing and doing without much debate a five-person, you know, with a five-person minority. And uh, you mentioned the fall. You're going to be unopposed, is that right? You, I am. So for the first time, you don't have an opposition? It's the first time, yes. Are there other candidates at the state level, I guess not including governor, are there other targets that you think listeners should be paying attention to following, supporting? Yes. I mean, I think that uh, I don't want to start getting into naming specific districts right now. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, one, because I still think there's a lot of campaign to go. Mm-hmm. But of the 118 legislative de- races this mm-hmm. November, there will be Democratic nominees in 111 or 112 of them. That's the first time that's happened in decades. It's remarkable. And so for the first time, there really will be a choice and there'll be some accountability in these districts and some need to campaign, not just to the most right-wing primary voters, but to the people that show up on the general election day. And I think that will be really good for the state. Uh, I think that, I think there's absolutely some places where we can win some seats because People fundamentally know that their government is not working for them right now. They see it every day in a national level, at a state level. I think people, um, you know, look, we do basically two really big things in Tennessee with taxpayer dollars. We fund education and health care. On health care, we haven't done Medicaid expansion. We've let 10 rural hospitals close life expectancy is declining. We're not doing a good job. On education, we sabotaged our own flagship university's board of trustees this year by focusing on sex week instead of whether they're actually graduating enough engineers and professionals for the for tomorrow's economy. And then when it comes to K through 12 education, the central premise of this administration has been the accountability systems that are you know guaranteed by testing and for the you know basically the third year in a row those tests have been a total failure in uh implementation and so i think people know that things need to get better can get better uh and the question is going to be uh whether we're so stifled by kind of partisan tribal identity politics that we can't make good decisions for the state Well, thanks so much for coming on the Nashville Sounding Board. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was a real pleasure for me. Thanks for having me. I think one of the really great things about this is people don't really, it's difficult to keep in touch with the state level politics. I feel like it's pretty easy to keep in touch nationally and to figure out what's going on locally. The state is kind of a black hole of voter knowledge. It really can be. And and that's actually one of its biggest problems. So I, I really appreciate this. As a quick note, if you're enjoying the Nashville Sounding Board, please leave a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app or your app of choice. 